Another day, another dollar makes you wonder where you Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it is almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas, in my personal mobile studio, my 2006.5 Jetta Diesel TDI. Today is Tuesday, May the 12th, 2009. I believe we are up to show 198, heading for our bicentennial episode on Thursday is the way it's going to work out if my mind is working right today and I got the number right. And uh, It's been a busy week thus far, and uh, because of that, I'm not sure if I'm right about that episode number, but I'm pretty sure. I am. Anyway, folks, uh, this should be a good show. What I'm going to talk about today, uh, once I kind of get into it, is finding a good bug-out location. And uh, i got some house cleaning to do and some follow-up on yesterday's show, as I usually do, before we get into that. But this has been a subject I've done in the past. It's always worked out well. It's always kind of gotten people excited about the potential to find themselves that little place out in the country. And uh, so I figured it was about time to go ahead and, and let's go through that subject again with maybe some new inputs that uh, that I have for you. And, and part of why I have new inputs is because I've been dealing with setting my own one up now. Um, I guess we've, we've had the place for almost five years now, but we've really been working on it as our own for two because we actually leased it out to uh, to my niece and her husband for the first three. So over the over that duration and period, I've gotten to, uh, to come with a new appreciation about maybe even appreciating some of the things that are there that I didn't really realize realize we're there when I first bought it. So we'll talk about some of that stuff today, too. On the house cleaning, though, let's... uh Let's do a little bit of follow-up from yesterday's show first. Uh, I had a, most people seem to really agree with me that our government's handling of the recent swine flu uh, scare was uh, primarily a scare because of the way they reacted to it. It was an overreaction, and it demonstrated massive incompetence. But did get a few people tell me I'm wrong about that? They said that the government's handling was uh, what was. And this is a person I really respect that said this because uh, I know them from the forum fairly well, that they did a a quick and decisive response. Let me tell you something about using the terms quick and decisive, though, and this is despite the fact that I respect the person that wrote this to me. Uh, That's politicians' words, and you've had politicians' words planted in you if you're using those words. I've been in business for 20 years. I've dealt with businesses, everything from high-end technology to, to basic construction, underground construction, and, and you know guys that pull cable in buildings, and, and everything in between. And I've never heard that a response done by a company was a quick and decisive response from normal people sitting around a normal table discussing what to do next. Never heard that those words used that way. That that word, that wordology there, I guess, if that's phraseology there, is political speak. And you've been handed it. And I think you should really examine a few things. And I'm going to give a few of them to you right here. Number one, when Janet Napolitano came out and said that the flu will soon turn deadly in the United States, that was a complete overreaction and something the government should have done. When the vice president of the United States went on national TV and said, I've told all my family to stay the hell away from airplanes. Don't get on an airplane plane, that was overreaching and an overreaction. When the CDC and World Health Organizations in 
combination with their communications back and forth whipped up a complete hysteria where if one kid came down with a flu, by the time this was going on, we had already known that this crap about, well, we didn't know. We didn't know. You know what? A week into it, we knew. We knew that it was a particularly mild strain of flu, and it was having a very mild reaction on people. When they whipped the frenzy up to the point where one kid would get sick in one school in a district and the entire district would close for two to three weeks, that was an overreaction. People say, well, the death rate was extremely high in Mexico. You're assuming that what they told you is the whole truth. It is not. They gave you the number of death and the number of confirmed cases. And you sit here and go, that's like a death rate of like 7%. That's huge. But they know, and they're not telling you how many people in Mexico sort of kind of come down with the flu and didn't go to the doctor and just stayed home or just did what they always did and got through the flu because it wasn't that big of a deal. And that the only people that were confirmed cases were people that went and got treatment and then were tested. So reporting the numbers the way they did out of Mexico alone was an overreaction. Taking the pandemic alert to a level five saying that a pandemic was imminent. Imminent. When we didn't even really have an epidemic on our hands yet. Absolutely, totally irresponsible. And and I could do a whole book, but I won't. Just wanted to do that. Uh, My regular uh, house cleaning. Number one, if you think you get more than 25 cents of value out of the Survival Podcast, consider joining the Member Support Brigade and getting exclusive uh, benefits only available to our members. Consider checking out our sponsors. They're in the right-hand margin of our site at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Check out James Yeager's Outfit Tactical Response Gear. Uh, There are sponsors of the day. We'll call them that today. And uh, take a look at some of the stuff they offer. They offer some really cool stuff. Come on down to Region 5's Bug Out Camp Out Get Together. That is at the end of this month, Memorial Day weekend near Goldthwaite, Texas. There will be a link in the show notes. We're going to be doing that very soon. Hope to see you there. We're just going to stop house cleaning there today and go into the show. So today's show again is going to be about finding a great bug out location. And I guess what I need to start out with is, well, what the heck is a bug-out location? Now, most of my audience that listens regularly would know that a bug-out location, or B-O-L, or a bowl, depending on what how you want to read your Internet shorthand, is a place where if everything goes really bad where you're at, you can fall back to it. military term that would be more accurate for it would be a fallback location. So you have your home in the city or your home in town or your home wherever, and then you you have this remote piece of property somewhere else with a little dwelling sitting on it that has been somewhat prepped so that you can go there and live for a considerable length of time without any outside support. And hold on, i got to cut a guy off because he's a jerk here. That's the only way around the situation. Okay. And uh, you would you would take off and, 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 and go there if everything went bad. That's kind of a classic bug-out location, as I give the guy the bird as he drives by. Um, That's kind of a classic bug-out location and a classic bug-out mentality. What I want to do, though, for those of you that kind of limit bug-out location to that frame of thought is get you to expand your horizons a little bit today. Because to me, a bug-out location is any secondary piece of property 
period. It could be in another town. I would not advise that. By the time I'm done with today's show, you'll understand why I wouldn't, but I would understand it because if you have a regional problem and you have a little place you can go in a town 400 miles away, you know, if let's look at Hurricane Katrina. This is a perfect example. Let's say a person lived in New Orleans, Louisiana, and decided that they, you know, they just really loved the Texas Hill Country, just loved it. But they also loved, you know, nights out, dining, and things like that in, in, in city life. So they uh, bought a place just far enough outside Austin to avoid the high property prices for people that work in town, but really too close to Austin and too close to people and too surrounded and not a big property and not all the tough stuff I'm going to talk about today. Just a place like many people would live in day-to-day living near Austin, Texas. And that way they had the hill country uh, to their west and they had Austin to the east and they had Lake Buchanan or whatever lake it is there. And uh, they could just really enjoy it as a vacation home. When Hurricane Katrina came, it would have been a perfect bug out location for them. If there was any way they could have worked remotely, they probably would have had high speed internet access, right? So that would be a bug out location. It's not what I want. It may not be what you want, but to me, it gave them a place to fall back to under a, a fairly probable disaster scenario for the people that live in a place like New Orleans. It's not that far away. It's about 600 miles, I guess. Uh, relatively easy to get to and from. So it may have been, a, and far enough inland, that the primary threat for New Orleans, hurricane, if there's a hurricane threatening New Orleans, you're not going to have to worry about it in Austin. So you really couldn't argue with the decision other than it isn't what I want. So that's that's why I open with that as an example. Because what's important to understand is there's a lot of times on this show where I'll be like, this, you can't let this happen, or you got to do this, or, or what have you, or this absolutely is true. And the problem with that line of thinking when it comes to a place that you're going to call a home, even a secondary home, is it, it, it's too personal of a choice. You know what you want. You know how far away you're willing to manage. And if your goal eventually is to move there permanently, well, you know where you want to live. And I think if you want to move there permanently, you maybe need to do a much better tactical job of selecting a bug-out location. Because once you've moved there, you no longer have a fallback position. You've now, you've now fallen back, right? So hopefully if you're taking the approach that I am, which is I want to go there permanently, um, you've picked something kind of uh, a little more tactically advantageous to yourself. And I don't just mean from a tactical from a military standpoint, but tactically from a living standpoint. If you own a, a quarter-acre lot near Austin, Texas, it's not going to be the greatest thing in the world for setting up a full-scale permaculture food forest uh, to provide food for yourself long-term, attracting wildlife, having livestock, being able to maybe discharge a weapon in your backyard to keep sharp on your shooting with that and go to the range, all these other things that maybe are important to you or maybe not. Again, you have to make these decisions for yourself. So, you know, 
let me just talk about it from my viewpoint and, and what made the place that we've chosen a great location for me. Number one was distance from where we are now. It is right past a five-hour drive. I would not want it to be six hours. I would not do seven. I would have done seven before I bought it. After dealing with it at five hours, I've determined it pretty much is a limit for me, and if it was an hour closer, it would be better. Unfortunately, I think that I would have never been able to find something as ideal as I have an hour closer. That, that kind of had to go to my edge to find what I was looking for. But proximity to your existing location. You do not want it too close. If you have a regional disaster, something that's massive and regionally based, especially something that's like a chemical or bioweapons attack or something like that, which I know a lot of people don't believe is going to happen, and I don't. I hope the hell it doesn't, and I think its probability is lower than maybe the government would like like us to believe, because they sensationalize it to get away with crap that they're doing, but it still is a possibility. So if you have that happening, your bug out location is, you know, 45 minutes away, but kind of out in the sticks, like you live in a city that's surrounded by, you know, New Orleans would be a perfect example. You can go 45 minutes from New Orleans and be in the middle of flipping nowhere if you go the right direction. Out in the swamps, you need a boat to get to a house. That's how remote you can be there. But when that hurricane came, you were still in deep crap because that swamp flooded. And that the hurricane came inland quite a bit uh, before it began to really peter out. So there's the perfect example of a city where you could be very close but still be out in the middle of nowhere, buy land very affordably for next to nothing, but you weren't far enough away. So, again, you got to balance that. Number two... Um, if you don't have the financial resources to buy a site-built home, buying a piece of property is a good first step, but you've got to put as quickly as possible some sort of habitable structure on it. I don't care if you go out and spend $800 on an old pull-behind trailer, and if you don't have a truck capable of pulling it, you rent one or borrow one and drag it out there and stick it out there in the middle of the ground and have a place where you can go inside and sleep. Tent can Camping in a bug-out location is probably not the greatest idea in the world. There's there's innumerable issues with it, but the biggest one is you will go there and stay there less. Since you go there and stay there less, like on long weekends and mini vacations and things like that, you will do less with the property. You'll be less excited about it. It's more likely to turn into uh, kind of a, a mess for you, a burden versus an asset in your mind. If you do not have a place you can go, lay down in a good bed, completely sheltered, and uh, reasonably safe from the outside elements. So I, I think it's imperative that you get some kind of a structure, again, even a tow-behind uh, mobile home, onto the property as soon as possible. What about the potential for somebody to steal it? I mean, you could take the wheels off it, I guess. There's, there's a lot of things that you could do. Uh, one would be to actually jack it up and let the air out of the wheels, um, if you buy the right piece of property and you do some of the other things I'm going to talk about, it's less of a worry. And uh, 
my real advice, though, is if you're taking that approach and you're eventually going to build a permanent structure, buy something that if it got stolen, you'd be you'd be pissed, but you're not going to your life's not going to end over it. Don't go out, you know, and buy yourself a brand new twenty thousand dollar motorhome and put it out there. That doesn't make any sense, and that is likely to get stolen. If you take kind of an older looking one, especially one that's kind of a little bit beat looking on the outside, not likely to be stolen in the first place. So. You know, again, I just think it's important to get some type of a structure out there, including maybe buying one of these sheds that look like a little cottage. Uh, you see, I wouldn't buy them from here because there's, you know, private individuals you can buy from that will construct it for you, do a better job for less money. But I'm talking about the type of outbuildings that you see in places like Lowe's and Home Depot. And some of them are fairly sizable, and for three to $4,000, you can put in a fairly good size uh, little outbuilding, run some electricity. Electricity, put some stuff in there, keep everything dry, and eventually if you build a home, it can become what it was designed to be in the first place, an outbuilding or a guest house. So those are your two options that you have there. But I think unless you put a structure on the place within your first year, you're going to start resenting the fact that you have a vacant piece of land that takes up your money and your time. Unless you paid flat cash for it, the taxes are very low. Taxes takes me into my next thing to look for. Look for a place with low taxes. Look for a place that's unincorporated, uh, that has a low probability of being annexed by, let's say, a large school zone in the area or a town in the area, even if it's, you know, it's unincorporated now. There's, there's places around the Metroplex here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area that were unincorporated. Their taxes were extremely low. The city decided to annex them and make them part of their city and take them on, and the tax burden went through the roof over time once that happened, and they became subject to city regulations and things like that. The way to avoid that is to stay far enough away from cities uh, that would be likely to do something like that and to get in an area of sparse enough population where the cost to the city to support the population would be higher than the expected tax revenues because the business decision then for the city will be, yeah, we really don't want to do that. They only do it for money. So that's another thing to look for. Now, remoteness. How remote should you be? Well, first of all, that depends on your tolerance and your desires. In my instance, I looked for a property that felt very remote, that if somebody was going to it, they would have a little bit of apprehension of, man, I really don't need to be going back here without knowing who lives back here. A long, long little side road and then a long, several mile long dirt road ending in a gate and then my house is on the other side of that gate with four other people that live on that piece of mountain and then the road ends. That's about perfect for me from a standpoint of remoteness. Now, if you want to live in the middle of the Bitterroot Mountains in Montana, where even if you didn't put up a gate, you're probably not likely to see but a few human beings a year, simply because it's so remote, not that many people go there, that's great. And i got to tell you, there's a piece of me that feels that way and thinks that way, but being a married man who loves my wife, I had to find a balance between my ideal her ideal, and what the compromise in the middle is that we both could love. So for you married folks, you have to think that way as well. And if you're sitting there going, well, my wife would never let me move to X. She would want to move to Y. See if you can find a Z. See if you can find something that gives both of you more of what you want. For my wife, it was, I don't want to be so far away. 
that I can't go into, you know, a little town and be surrounded by people when I feel like it. Because she's social. She likes people. All right. I like to be, I like people in groups of like three or smaller. Okay. So I, uh, I, I would prefer to be more, more remote. So we've got this balance here where it's a fairly short car ride. To being where people are, yet it's a small town, uh, highly self-sufficient people to begin with in this town. Uh, good number of resources versus how many people live there. One of the things about Hot Springs, and this is something that I think a uh, a lot of people overlook with a bug out location, if you pick an area far enough away from a town. That you're not going to have to deal with if civil unrest breaks down with the direct effects. Maybe indirect, but not, you know, people not starting to burn your house down immediately. But if that town happens to be a tourist town, a town that a lot of people come to in a time of tourism, especially people that come there. Now, Hot Springs has its share of people that have vacation homes up there. But the vast majority of vacationers that go to Hot Springs do not live there. They don't have a place to stay there. They come there, they stay in a hotel. That means that the city's infrastructure, the city's support level, has been built at a level that is designed to support its peak in population. In other words, it's designed to be able to handle the population that's there in the middle of summer when there's tons of Joes and Janes with Tommy and Tammy and Joey and Bobby going swimming in the lakes. So what that means is in a time of, of, of harsh uh, harsh times where you know people aren't taking vacations because the shit has hit the fan, that the population of that town is likely to be far lower than its, its, its population capacity. And what that means is that the town is going to be more likely to able to make it through a shit at the fan. There's always exceptions. Don't write in and tell me, oh, you forgot about this. Yeah, I know. There's always exceptions, but you have to play the laws of probability there. So that's one of the things that we took into consideration with being willing to make that area work for us. So it may be something that you consider as well. And the smaller the tourism effect, and Hot Springs may have too much of it, but the smaller the better. If you find a town that's uh, its day-to-day population is about 3,000, uh, but it has a fairly significant uh, upswing in population during the high tourist season, say 3,000 in winter and 7,000 uh, in the summertime peak, or if it's a ski town and it's reversed around for the wintertime peak, might be a really good location to kind of not be in, but be in reasonable proximity to, because again, you have an infrastructure designed to support a greater capacity of people than generally actually live there. And again, I promise you, if we're having a complete catastrophic breakdown, people may be running off to their vacation homes, but if they don't have a vacation home, if they're, you know, Jack and Jane that stay in the uh, Romana Inn, they're not going to be running off to these little quaint tourist towns to have a vacation because they're not going to be able to. To me, size of the property was very, very important. Um, I wanted a minimum of five acres, and for the money we wanted to spend and the time frame we had to buy in to take advantage of the opportunity that popped up, five acres is what we found. It's what we could afford. 
I would have preferred something uh, on the scale of 10 acres. I think that would have been better, but I am happy with where we're at because of the way the properties are laid out and the fact that nobody on that mountain, uh, by a covenant, it's not a homeowner's thing, and I'll tell you my thoughts on those in a second, but by a buyer's covenant is what it's called. When you go in there, there are are three things that you agree to if you're going to own property there. And one is that you'll have no more than one permanently occupied structure per five acres. So if you buy five acres, there's one house. And that's what permanently occupied structure means, a house. So you can't buy five acres and subdivide it and put another house in, and then the guy next to you also has a guy crammed up against his property line. Just didn't going to happen. The other thing is if you have a mobile home, it has to be permanently affixed, so none of this stuff where things are sitting on rickety you know, cinder blocks or what have you. And number three, a roof of, of your structure must be a composite roof. You can't have, uh, you know, like a tin roof shack and say that's your house. Uh, that, that's it. That's all the restrictions. And uh, I, I was more than happy to enter into that covenant with the fellow community members that live out there because they think it's good for uh, the mountain. That made five acres a lot more bearable because pretty much what everybody's done is locate their house. And if you look at your hand and you say that your fingertips are north and that your palm is south and that uh, the side of your hand with your pinky is uh, is west, and I, it's kind of to the northwest corner uh, that everybody's located their home. So that case, the long side of the lot, and the lots are kind of all laid out, and it's sort of a rectangular, but instead of a long skinny rectangle, they're, they're linearly, uh, horizontally following the, uh, the dirt road uh, rectangular. That puts the houses very far, maximum distance apart from each other, where we really can't see anybody else's house from our front yard. Just can't do it. We do have a neighbor that lives on the other side of the street from us. The way their house is built kind of down in on a shelf, where they actually used dynamite to blast out the side of the mountain to get the view they wanted. Um, they're just down in a ditch. We can't see them. They're right there, but we don't even see them. So when you stand in our front yard, you feel like you're completely alone in the middle of nowhere. That's what we were looking for. Five Acres did it for us because we were in the mountains. Um, I do really like mountain land. For some people, it's not their cup of tea, and I understand that. It's rugged. It's rough, and it does not offer the kind of fertility that, you know, bottomland or farmland, a little bit more flat type of uh, a land does. You don't get quite as much solar exposure. There are some handicaps. Since we sort of live on a ridge, though, the solar exposure thing is mitigated. We get plenty of solar exposure. Since our ridge kind of plateaus, we get about two and a half of our five acres are really could be cultivated in one form or another. Not the way you do typical farmland, not what we're looking for anyway. Uh, so that's one of the advantages of mountain land. There's, there's two more that I think are important and at least bear your consideration unless you live in a part of the country where within five hours it's just not an option. Um, one is as soon as you start going up and down, on an old small country road through mountains, there's a psychological effect that I'm kind of getting out in the middle of nowhere and it may not be safe. That's what I want a bad guy to feel if they're trying to find their way back to our location. And uh, there's a lot of people that live 
on the you know the the, the closer to town side of that mountain they, they really don't want you back there if you don't belong there either so there's kind of a community neighborhood watch thing informally going on anyway and there is that effect and it's a it's a bigger effect than when the ground's flat I can't explain it but I'll tell you what you just especially the Arkansas mountains you're thinking there might be some rednecks up here that might keep me in a cage I mean there, <laughs> there just is that feel and uh, that's a good thing as far as I'm concerned and then the other one is, especially in the uh, southwest, south central United States, uh, tornado activity. Now, tornadoes can strike anywhere, and if you go do research on them, you'll find that, you know, in some of the biggest mountains in the world, there have been in the past tornadoes. But there's also been asteroids that have fallen out of the sky and struck the Earth. They're the exception, not the rule. If you look at a tornado touchdown map, just go to Google and type in tornado touchdown map and find as many of them as you can. And uh, if you overlay them with topographical maps, you'll find that as soon as elevation begins to rapidly increase, the, the, the the frequency of tornado touchdowns goes way, way, way down. And, uh, for instance, if you look at Hot Springs, Arkansas, you'll see a very high propensity for tornado touchdown in the in the town area and south of there, down around Malvern, and all these places where the land is relatively flat. As soon as you hit the Ouachita Mountains, um, you just see the numbers slide off the edge. And that's because of the way a tornado works. It does not do the best in a mountainous area. So it's no guarantee, but it does reduce the probability. So that was another reason uh, that if I was going to live in a place like Arkansas, which, like Texas, has a lot of tornadic activity, really, uh, really interested in having kind of a mountainous area. Mountain land is also a lot less likely to have been cleared off and clear cut, so there's probably a good tree canopy to work with, at least on part of the land. Uh, if that tree canopy is there, you probably have a very deep level of leaf layer. Under that leaf layer, uh, maybe for thousands of years, has been forming some of the richest, most fertile soil in the world that you can use for growing things. So it's another advantage. And then another advantage to mountains, and it's often overlooked because people see the, the bad side of this, is if you're on a mountain, water runs downhill. So you're less likely to be able to uh, to make most advantageous use out of rainwater in one aspect of it in that it runs off. But the other side of that is if you practice good permaculture techniques, uh, building swales into contours to collect water, the, uh, the slope of the land actually becomes an advantage, allowing you to collect a lot more water and build a multi-swale system, which some will talk about tomorrow when I talk about water collection. And it, kind of my big four, agriculture, water, guns, livestock. What do I mean by that? Agriculture is the land suitable for growing food. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, a big plot of corn and squash and things like that. I think I'll grow that no matter where I go, but... Mountain land is often very, very useful for growing uh, permaculture uh, perennial crops, things like berries and nuts and fruits, etc. So, is there is there a good potential to do that? Is you know, it, there's one thing in dealing with slope that's fine, but if it's a cliff face, you're not going to grow much on it. Five acres of cliff face isn't really very useful, but a reasonable slope that you can contend with with a good tree canopy will aid and benefit and be useful from agriculture. 
agricultural standpoints. And if you already have trees on the property, take a look at what's there. You may find some of them are already edible. Examples of what grows on our property that's uh, that's edible for humans are hickory nuts, which are very similar to pecans, actually. Butternuts, which are kind of another nut in the family. Uh, and uh, blackberries. Those three are uh, in heavy supply already there, so we will accentuate the habitat for those trees. There's also acorns, and you can eat acorns, but there's a pretty big process, and I've never really gotten into uh, doing it, but I guess if the shit hits the fan, at least we know they're there. They provide for wildlife as well, though, so since they're there for the wildlife, we have another source of food in the wildlife, and to me that is all part of the the agricultural food-growing permaculture world that those things are there. Water. Um, if you if you have water on the property, it's a huge plus. We happen to have a uh, seasonal creek that's probably running about eight to nine months out of most years. This year it may run all year with the amount of rain that we've gotten in this part of the United States this year. Uh, it's it's rained almost every day here for three weeks now. I've only seen the sun for a couple hours here and there. Uh, it's really a bit too much, but it will really fill up that creek. Seasonal creeks also give you a lot of potential to go in with a little machine. Uh, or if you're, you know, really ambitious, do it by hand and create a, maybe a dam system that's going to create reserve water even when the seasonal stream stops flowing. It's a great way to uh, create your own little watershed. Obviously, a pond uh, would be a huge advantage. A permanent creek, a huge advantage. A spring that just bubbles water forth from the ground, huge advantage. Anything that gives you a source of water on the property is a massive advantage, Up and including a well. And we also have a well on our property. I think it's a huge advantage to have a well because I don't have to worry about city water. Our well is over 600 feet deep. It ain't going to run dry in our lifetime. It just isn't going to happen. It's too deep into the water table. Very high-quality water. And since we're up in the mountains, we're not. We're going to deal with uh, a lot of the things that you deal with in wells in agricultural areas. It's another advantage to mountain land. Uh, there was no saying in the Army, and I think most people have heard it in other forms of uh, of communication, but shit rolls downhill. And that's absolutely true. I mean, it's as true as a metaphor, but it's true literally as well. And a lot of the things that infect rural well systems uh, aren't just the uh, chemicals that get used in agriculture, but actually the uh, bacteria produced by large amounts of, uh, of cow manure and uh, other livestock as well. So you don't deal with that in mountain land. So it's another reason to consider, even if you're not going to deal with mountain land, just maybe somewhat higher elevation uh, on your property. If, like us, you have a well that you depend on for water for your home, it's really a good idea that you get a manual uh, pump. I wouldn't sit there and you know, deny myself electricity and using it by turning the faucet, but if we ever lose the electrical grid, it's something that we want to have available to us so we still have a good source and ready supply of water beyond what we can do with rain catching and things like that. It may really be a place to start your solar redundancy if you want to put some solar panels in battery banks is at least to be have the ability to turn on water when you need it and uh, that's something that you can do relatively easily compared to uh, to wiring up your whole house for solar power 
Now, guns, what the hell do I mean by guns? I mean, your guns, you take them wherever you want, at least for right now in America, you take your guns wherever you want. I mean the ability to discharge firearms without somebody phoning up John Law and go, I heard gunshots. All right, I, I, I didn't want to live in a place where if I worked up a new load for uh, my deer rifle and I wanted to go out and set a target up 50 yards away and uh, take out a lawn chair and a portable bench and sit down and fire some shots off for groups and then go back in and tweak it a little bit, that the, the police were going to show up and ask me what's going on. So I looked for a place where people were already doing it. That was one of the big criteria I had. I, you know, just talk to some people in the area. Hey, does anybody ever shoot around here? Oh, yeah, we shoot off the back porch all the time. Done. That's all I needed to hear. Because I knew if they did it, it was acceptable in the community. And understand this, and this is bigger than just guns. You don't go into a community, become part of it, and then force your view on what that community should be on other people. You go into a community and you adapt to the community. So find one that fits you in all walks of life before you go there. You are not going to be a force of change in one of these rural communities. Those people live there the way they want. So that includes... If you're a person that would be really upset if the guy one house up the road was outside doing some target practice with his 45, if that's going to upset you, then find a place where it's not acceptable. Because you're not going to change that either, and you're going to be very unwelcome if you try to do that. But that's what I mean by guns. For me, can I fire guns in my backyard? Because another part of that is, hey, is anybody going to have a problem with a little bit of crop protection against the bushy-tailed squirrels uh, once in a while that also contribute to some Brunswick stew? Nobody's going to have a problem with that either. If I set up a deer feeder and I want to take a deer or two a year in my backyard, is anybody going to get upset? No. So that lets me take more advantage of the land, and that would not be the case if it wasn't there. Plus, I like to shoot for pleasure. So that was uh, another big one for me. Now, you know, the final one of my big four is livestock. And what I mean by that is there's two big things that I had to look for with being able to have some livestock. And for me, it's mostly going to be in the form of chickens. Uh, I may actually have some ducks or some geese at some point, but chickens is the primary one. For some people, it may be in the form of actual uh, cows or goats or sheep or, or whatever it is that you actually want on your property. Well, there, there's two things that I wanted to look for. One is the habitat good for the livestock. Is it sustainable for the livestock? Chickens you can keep really, if, if, if you were you know permitted, damn near anyway. Plenty of people keep chickens right in the middle of urban areas, so not that huge of a hurdle uh, to successfully keep chickens for me. Ducks, you know, really you need water. I mean, you can keep ducks without water, but they're going to be a lot happier, uh, more productive animals with some water uh, uh, accessible to them. Uh, so that's something you got to look at there. Goats, you need a little bit more land. I guess you can do some dwarf goats like the Dervaises do, but I think you're kind of pushing things there a little bit. And you always have to worry about goats having the, uh, not just ability, but uh, a very high-tuned ability for escape. They'll actually climb fences, and they'll eat anything so you have to control their their uh their proximity to the things you do not want fed on uh, uh highly before the, the you may end up with uh, your entire garden eaten if you're not you know, careful. So not a huge fan of the goat. So, But whatever it is as far as you would like to keep long term, and if you're keeping a secondary location, you're not living there, obviously you're not going to have livestock while you're, while you're not there. But if you fall back there permanently or if you move there intentionally permanently, it's something you want to consider. The other side of that is 
is anybody going to have a problem with it? Are you going to be remote enough and rural enough that if you bring in uh, a chicken coop and uh, half a dozen chickens, nobody gets upset? Is or you know, if you want to actually breed chickens and have a rooster, um, are people going to get upset because that rooster's crowing in the morning? I, I don't want to have you know reproducing chickens unless we get to a point where I need to. Uh, so I want the chickens for what they do as far as scratch and manure and for egg production. So I, I won't have a rooster. But you know, I would if I was going to get a rooster, I would talk to my neighbors to say, Hey, are you going to be real upset if you hear a rooster crow in the morning? Because uh, it's a legitimate concern. It's a legitimate issue, and that's what roosters do. They crow when the sun comes up. So one of the things you can look for is does anybody already have have livestock. And again, that's a great indicator that you're moving to a community that already accepts that. Or, you know, say, hey, do you think anybody have a problem? Talk to a neighbor. Do you think anybody would have a problem if I had a little chicken house here? And uh, if they say, yeah, I have a big problem with it, uh, or I don't even, I don't think I'd like that, then you really need to consider it if it's important to you. So, again, those are the kind of my four big ones that I look for, you know, agriculture uh, capability, water uh, production, guns, uh, allowed, accessible, and accepted in the community, uh, and uh, you know having that ability to have livestock. If I had that, I figured that everything else was pretty much sorted out, and uh, I, I guess it really has. Now, what about some of the things that I've learned about everything having a purpose and a reason for happening, and that I'm actually a lot more pleased with my property now than maybe I was even when I first purchased it. Number one, like I said, I'm with a lot of y'all when it comes to something like, well, I'd like to live out in the middle of nowhere in Montana. But the more the uh, the permaculture, agriculture bug has bitten me, the more I appreciate the very long summers and relatively mild winters of the south. So that's been a huge thing in turning me to believing, boy, I'm really kind of in the right place here. I've kind of made the right decision, uh, the right choice with, with staying in the South. Something that's aggravating that is I know a lot of people are big believers in this global warming scam, uh, as I call it. And uh, my view is the planet did warm for a while, and right now it's cooling. And uh, it, it is cooling, and it's been cooling since, like, 1999. And if you've noticed, the, the winters are still relatively mild compared to what they were, let's say, in the 70s and the 80s. But the summers have been a lot more mild. We haven't had uh, these, these brutal summers like we had in the years of like 96, 97, 98, 99. We're seeing a definite cooling trend. And a very mild cooling trend can easily take um, a short but reasonable growing season in the far north and turn it into a, a failure of a growing season. So it's it's just something that I don't know how far this thing's going to go as far as uh, is climate change in the direction of cooling. Uh, as I've said before, I don't believe that man is directly affecting it, but it is something we have to accept. And in 1820, it would have been really hard to grow much in Montana. 
And to think that we can't get back to what the climate was like in 1820 is kind of foolish and kind of ignores history. So it's something that started to make me a lot have a lot more affinity uh, for the South. And uh, my desire to maybe live in the great Northwest has declined a little bit. No problems for you if you want to be there. Again, like I said, this is highly personal, but it's something I've started to kind of factor into my decisions because, honest to God, once we move to my bug-out location permanently, I plan on buying another piece of land. Uh, going out and finding something that's it's, it's, it's more remote, uh, probably doing the travel trailer thing with it, I won't need a second total house at that point. Um, don't know that I'll ever really need it for a fallback location. My initial thought was maybe, you know, have more freedom then, buy something way out in the, uh, the Rocky Mountains. And now I'm thinking something else in the south is probably uh, a good idea in putting into some sort of a uh, permaculture system there that doesn't require the presence of man except on occasion. So how do you find a place like this? Uh, Where do you start your search? One of the great places, I think, to locate areas is unitedcountry.com. It's a pretty cool website. And uh, specializes in rural and, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, vacation-type country properties. And I have found, in general, that they list their properties for higher than the market rate of a given area. But it's because it's so specialized in finding property that is the type of thing most most people looking for a bug-out location would look for, it's a great way to find towns and cities and townships where that type of property is, and then to go directly to something like Realtor.com and search that area uh, by zip code or do something like contact a local real estate agent in that area, give them an idea of what you're looking for, and see if they can put you on a list where they'll let you know when anything like that pops up. Uh, To a degree, that's sort of how we settled on Hot Springs. We had to move a little quicker in the end to take advantage of an opportunity, but it's pretty much what we did. You can also check out tax offices, look for property that's in tax default. It's a great way to pick up property at a lower cost. But the biggest thing I can tell you is to start looking, start shopping. Uh, people often say, well, I don't have the money to buy a property. I can't do that right now. But shopping's free. And the more you shop, the more you'll learn. And when you do get ready, when you do have the opportunity to buy, be, be, buy a piece of property, you're going to be a hell of a lot more informed. You're going to see a lot more properties, know a property going for in the area. You're not going to think something's a good deal when it's really just something you can get any day of the week. You're going to know it's a good deal. So I would say start shopping. Another thing is if you do kind of settle in and say, I like this area, uh, property's affordable, people seem right, go take a mini vacation there. Go stay in a hotel, eat in the food, you know, eat the places where the locals eat, talk to people. If you're a church-going person, find the church in the area that's of your particular denomination. Go to that church, experience the community before you buy a house there. Remember that, you know, this might be someplace you live permanently uh, by choice or by, you know, something happening and requiring that. There are people, I guarantee you, if they had second homes that were living in New Orleans, decided after Hurricane Katrina to take whatever money the insurance uh, company would give them to sell the, the piece of land for whatever they could get for it, and wherever their secondary location is that they went to, they just chose to stay there and not go back. That's happened uh, for a lot of people. 
And because of that, you have to accept the fact that you may actually have to use what you're buying someday, and it may turn out that way. And I can't tell you what's going to happen in your town. Just like we, when we talk about you know preps and, and things like that, you never know exactly what it is that's going to go wrong. You just understand that something can. So put that into your thought processes as you evaluate. Uh, finishing up, I want to reiterate, look hard at taxes. I don't care how affordable the property is. If the property were to be appraised at double its value, how high would the taxes go? Look at that very, very sternly. If your taxes are 300 a year, you know your upside double implication is $600 a year. Not that groundbreaking or earth-shattering, but if you're already paying $1,000 a year in property taxes, it can turn into $2,000 relatively easy. 2400 is not that far away. Now you're looking at $200 a month to live in your own house, even if it's paid for. So really look at property taxes, look at the propensity for annexation uh, by a, a town that's near the area. Again, keeping a low pro, a low density. And uh, my last thing on geography, stay away from major highways, not just for the typical reasons given in you know the prepper community that if you know if we have a complete the end of the world as we know it scenario, the roving hordes are going to follow the interstates. They probably will. I wouldn't want to live off an interstate. But the further you are from things like interstates, the lower the probability that you'll ever have to deal with the horror that is imminent domain someday. You stay out of the towns, you stay away from major uh, major road systems, and uh, it's probably not going to be likely because there's nothing there that makes it worth it uh, for the government or for industry and cooperation with the government to come in and try to enact imminent domain. That may be a reason to not pick property that actually butts right up against national forest or state forest land. I know that sounds like a great idea. It's something we considered, but in the end what we decided is if we bordered a state forest, we opened ourselves up to things like the government coming in and saying, you can't do that on this property because it's affecting state forests or national forests. So while I'm all for being in close proximity to a short drive, even a short walk away, I've kind of lost my affinity for being on a border just thinking about what government has done in the past to people. And with that, I think I'll go ahead and wrap up today's show. I hope it was a good one. I hope it's got you thinking about building that second piece of uh, property for yourself or finding that permanent place to live out of the city uh, where you can really live life the way that human beings were designed to live in close connection to the earth. And I don't say that as some kind of spaced out spiritual person. I say that as a simple, logical person that has to, can tell you I've been uh, to quite a few places in the world and, and from America to the third world, the closer that I've seen people living to the earth, the happier that I've actually seen the genuine joy in their hearts. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.